Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. We're very fortunate to be here with Dr. George Peoples. He's the founder and director of the Cancer Vaccine Development Program and founder and CEO of Cancer Insight. He's also a professor of surgery at the Uniformed Services University, as well as a uh, adjunct professor at the Department of Surgical Oncology at MD, Ander- MD Anderson Cancer Center, the associate editor of the Clinical Cancer Research, and a retired U.S. Uh, Army colonel. Sir, thank you for being here with us. Great to be with you guys. Just to get started, if you don't mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you came from, where you trained, and how you found yourself doing what you do now. It's a very long story. However, um, West Pointer, and then went to Johns Hopkins Medical School, did serve an internship at Walter Reed prior to getting a civilian deferment, Uh, did all my general surgery training in uh, Boston at Brigham Women's Hospital, had a good opportunity there to do a postdoc fellowship in the biologic cancer therapy lab where I learned cancer immunology and then went on to surgical oncology at MD Anderson. Came back into the military and my first job with the military was in surgical oncology at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Stayed there for eight years and then eventually moved over to Brook Army Medical Center as the chief of surgical oncology uh, and also headed up the cancer care program there in that same period of time was uh, heading up uh, the United States Military Cancer Institute, which was an initiative to link together all the cancer programs in the military. So did you, just formulating your career throughout the military to what you're doing now in your civilian life, did you know all along that this is what you wanted to do, that you wanted to treat and cure cancer? (laughs) I appreciate that cure part. I knew that it was cancer that I was most likely uh, going to end up in. But, you know, up until that point, I'd been exposed uh, to a number of research programs through medical school. I eventually knew I wanted to do surgery. Uh, Started in general surgery, and then while I was at uh, Brigham Women's Hospitals, when I really realized that cancer was the area that I wanted to focus on. And so I sought out uh, research experience um, in cancer immunology, which I thought was a new hot area. This was back in the early 90s. Um, And then went on to do the fellowship in surgical oncology at MD Anderson. So I knew that I wanted to be involved with cancer. And then as my career progressed within the military, both at Walter Reed and Brooke, it was a combining of both the clinical practice of surgical oncology obviously in teaching hospitals, so teaching residents uh, and fellows, uh, but also maintaining this research interest. And that research interest eventually kind of took on a bit of a life of its own in uh, cancer immunotherapies and particular cancer vaccine development. Uh, It also was a point in time where we were learning more and more about the immune response to cancer. And of course, these days, immunology has exploded as a field of study uh, with the recent approvals of multiple immune mechanism uh, drugs like the checkpoint inhibitors. So this has now become my primary focus, is in the research, uh, assessing uh, new products for clinical trials, and ultimately, hopefully getting some cancer vaccines to the approval stage. 
Well, sir, we spoke earlier uh, with a lot of our surgical residents here about uh, the specifics of identifying a goal in your life and, and trying to get there through as like a resident or a junior staff. Can you elaborate on how important it is to kind of find your direction and try to embrace it and despite all the barriers that may come your way? You know, it's interesting because I, you know, I, I think that people who particularly go into medicine, you know, a lot of times that decision, okay, I'm going to go into medicine, I'm going to go to medical school, and you think that that's, you know, such a monumental decision, and in some ways it is, but as we all know, you know, going into medicine is just the first step, and then what type of medicine, and then within that, sub, that specialty area, the subspecialty area. So it just seems like the number of decisions and potential, you know, career paths uh, just uh, become greater and greater, more exponential with each of those decisions. I do truly believe, though, that you do, you arrive at a point in time, though, where you're, and I, I oftentimes when I speak to students, I use this analogy of, you know, you're climbing the mountain and there's all these possibilities, different ways that you ultimately, you know, can get to the top. But once you're at the top, you can look down, you can see all the different potential ways down. And when you see all those potential ways down, you eventually are going to funnel yourself into what you think is the right path. And so I do think of the career path in a similar way. There's kind of this expansion phase or exploratory phase where you're looking at all the possibilities. And at some point, you find what really um, intrigues you or, 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 or raises a passion in you or, or motivates you. And that's when you begin into the focus phase. And that's when you start excluding certain things. If you're in general surgery, um, for example, it's when you make the decision that I'm going to go into surgical oncology over plastics and reconstruction or transplant. And once you know that you want to go into surgical oncology, that gives you a focus. And then you need to work towards that focus. And this is where, you know, finding that area for passion is important because developing your career, developing your career path um, requires effort. So it requires passion, requires motivation, requires effort. And then you begin to focus in on here's where I see myself going. Now, you may still not ultimately know what your job is going to be, where you're going to plant, your, plant yourself for a career, but you're moving in that direction and you, you have some focus there. Ultimately, ultimately, you will arrive at that position. I gave a talk very recently to a group of MD-PhD students. So these are people who, uh, this is at UT Health Science Center, they came into this program committing to completing not only an MD degree, but also a PhD degree, a nine-year program. Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine, you know, 22-year-old deciding, hey, I think I'll start sign up for a nine-year yeah. program, okay? But that requires some commitment, and I spoke with these guys about where they're going. And, of course, you can imagine these are very focused, motivated people, but yet a lot of them were still in that exploratory phase. They really didn't know. They didn't know what area of medicine they were going to end up or where their research focus was going to be for their Ph.D., you eventually get there, and you get there, and I explain this to them. Uh, I'm convinced that you get there because of three reasons. You figure out what you're good at. Then you figure out what you're passionate about. And then you figure out what brings you satisfaction. If you can answer those three questions, you're going to end up where you're supposed to. 
At what point did that click in for you? At what point throughout your career? Was that very early on that that clicked in or was that during that fellowship? That was actually probably last week. Okay. <laughs> now, right. there's, a certain, there's a certain perspective that you do gain with experience and, and, and time. Uh, and you begin to look back and you try to make sense of the path that got you to yeah. this place. Because, you know, I arrived again um, at a place where when I was retiring from the military, great job, very active surgical oncology practice, great residence to teach, great research program going in an area that I was passionate about, probably the perfect job for me. But then it was time to retire. So all of a sudden you're back on that exploratory phase again. Yeah. Well, with that, I think we'll jump right into the segment we called our dissection of the day. And this is when we delve into a specific topic with with our experts. And since we have you here, we've been fortunate enough to be have be able to listen to you a little bit earlier, talk about some of the exciting uh, therapies that you're developing. So we wanted to talk about the next generation of cancer vaccine uh, strategies. Um, so for, like I said, we have a broad spectrum of listeners. If you could just start at, at, at the basics, what is cancer immunotherapy and what do, how much immunology do we really need to understand in order to understand what you do? <laughs> Probably the less you understand about immunology, the better. Um, I think the thing that, that most listeners should understand is that the way we look at cancer, the way we treat cancer patients is clearly changing. And immunotherapy is here to stay. And so previously, obviously, we thought we always think about surgery, chemotherapy, radiation. Of course, you know, you can veer off even from those and talk about small molecules and other uh, adjuncts uh, to the way we treat cancer. But immunotherapy is a departure from all of those because the concept among or about most immunotherapeutic agents uh, particularly uh, the ones that are FDA-approved now, the checkpoint inhibitors or checkpoint blockade agents, these are the first class of drugs that actually do not have a direct impact on cancer. So every other therapies, you know, whether it's chemo, trying to kill rapidly dividing cells, uh, small molecules that are trying to block very specific signaling pathways that cancer is hijacked for its own benefit, now all of a sudden you have immunotherapy, and in particular the checkpoint inhibitors, where here's a drug that does not touch a cancer, but it's a cancer drug, and it really is meant to modulate the immune system. So it's our first true practical proof of principle that the immune system has the capacity to recognize and kill cancer. Huge step in our field. And um, now we have a number of these checkpoint blockade agents approved in a number of cancer indications Remembering, again, their only mechanism of action is to block the off switch on a T-cell. So we block those off switches so the T-cells can't be suppressed or inhibited once they arrive in the tumor microenvironment, which we've always known to be hostile to the immune system. The reason why cancers can survive is they've developed means by which they can escape the immune system or suppress the immune system. So we know that the immune system is active in cancer. We know that these T cells are trying their best to recognize and destroy cancer. And cancer, through just a process of evolution, has figured out how to avoid that. And so the checkpoint inhibitors, very simply, 
are blocking that off switch so that the tumors can't turn off those T cells. And as a result, approximately, approximately 20% of the time, you take a cancer patient who's stage four metastatic disease and you give them a checkpoint inhibitor and they have a dramatic response. Tumor starts shrinking away, melting away, sometimes to the point of complete responses. And, and, and that comes with a prolonged benefit. So this isn't like a chemo or even a monoclonal antibody therapy where it works as long as you're receiving the drug. This has a tail associated with it because now you've taught the immune system how to recognize and destroy cancer, and so it can continue to do that, and you develop immunologic memory just like you would against a virus. So the basic concepts of immunology are, are, are not as important, um, but understanding that there is, in fact, an active, ongoing battle in cancer patients between the immune system and the tumor, and that we're figuring out that mechanism of suppression so that we can intervene in those steps. Now, ultimately, we were talking about cancer vaccines, and so one of the things that we ultimately want to get to is can we actually prevent cancer in one variety or another as opposed to just treating cancer? So that's extremely exciting stuff that uh, you're basically being able to hijack the immune system to sort of work for us uh, against this terrible disease. What cancers is this uh, going to be able to be used for? Is it is it just any cancer or, or are there specific ones we're really looking at? Right. Melanoma has always kind of served as the poster child for immunotherapy and cancer treatments because melanoma has all long been recognized as an immunogenic tumor. Close behind that would be renal cell carcinoma. These are tumors that naturally invoke an immune response to the point of being able to see spontaneous regressions. And that was one of the first true proofs that the immune system had this capacity. But of course, spontaneous regressions are very few and far between. But they do exist, particularly in melanoma. Think of the situation where a patient comes in, they have a metastatic node that you surgically removed. It has metastatic melanoma, and yet you can't find a primary anywhere good example, likely there was spontaneous regression of that primary. So melanoma has always been the poster child, and that's, of course, where we've started not only with the vaccine concepts, but the checkpoint blockades and first the first approvals uh, by the FDA of new checkpoint blockade agents uh, were in melanoma. Uh, the first attempt was blocking CTLA-4. Uh, after that, PD-1, PDL one uh, have come um, quickly there on the hills. These are the off switches that I referred to uh, for the T cells. And so melanoma uh, was the first approvals, but now we've seen approvals in non-small cell lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma, head and neck cancers, uh, lymphomas. And so these are all diseases where um, the activity of the immune system is shown to be beneficial with these checkpoint blockade agents, but nevertheless, we've never considered non-small cell lung cancer as an immunogenic tumor. But yet we're seeing those successes. Mm -hmm. Now the problem, of course, is we don't see success in everyone. This is still a relatively a minority of patients. The best response rates still are seen among melanoma, but nevertheless, we're seeing them in these other cancers. And we're talking about 20%, you know, maybe slightly less 
uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about deep, partial, and complete responses, and therefore improve survival. And survival, of course, being a major key. It's one thing to reduce a tumor mass, but does that equate, uh, or I shouldn't equate, does that uh, eventually lead to, uh, to a survival advantage? So, of course, one of the newest uh, and hottest areas in, in cancer immunotherapy is how do you make checkpoint inhibitors better? How do you make their reach deeper? Um, and, of course, uh, this is back to now my area of interest in cancer vaccine development. Um, and vaccines are probably not the, you know, the best terminology. We really think of them as T-cell eliciting therapies. So how do, can we generate tumor-reactive T-cells is, is really the point. As I mentioned, checkpoint inhibitors only work if you have T-cells that are trying to actively engage and, and recognize and destroy tumor. If you don't have those T-cells or you don't have enough of those T-cells, well, you can use as many checkpoint inhibitors as you want, and it's not going to be beneficial. So a very rational combination of using a T-cell listening therapy, particularly something that can generate tumor reactive T-cells, combined with these blo checkpoint blockade agents, now you've got more of these T-cells getting to the tumor, and they're protected using the checkpoint inhibitors so that the tumors can't deactivate. So um, I think going forward, that is going to be the critical area for cancer vaccine development is really trying to make the checkpoint inhibitors better. Uh, Dr. Peoples, you, you uh, gave your own tumor. So instead of trying to guess what the antigen of choice is, you know, a lot of my previous work has been done on antigen-specific vaccines. And in particular, we've targeted the HER2 protein in breast cancer. We've targeted the folate binding protein in ovarian cancer. Those are examples. But for example, if you have a very good HER2-directed vaccine, you can actually go after any cancer that expresses HER2. And in, in, in our case, even low and intermediate levels of HER2 were, were sufficient to generate a good immune response and even a clinical benefit in phase two studies. And so, you know, there's a variety of tumors, pretty much anything of an epithelial origin um, expresses HER2 and therefore could be targetable uh, with a HER2 vaccine. So that's just kind of scratching the surface and showing a potential um, uh, line of investigation along the antigen-specific vaccines. And we continue those. Um, not only against HER2, but folate. The folate vaccine, very good initial phase 2A results in ovarian. Uh, that trial very likely will lead to a larger randomized phase 2B trial. Uh, once again, trying to prevent disease recurrence. So I mentioned just very briefly um, that the tumor microenvironment is somewhat hostile uh, to the endogenous immune response. One of our initial um, techniques or initiatives, I guess I should say, it was trying to um, circumvent uh, the established tumor. So instead of trying to use immunotherapy against established tumor, it was really meant, uh, or what we attempted, was to circumvent that by waiting until the, the tumor mass had been removed or treated by multimodality therapy and the patient was declared uh, disease-free clinically. That allows us to test vaccines in that adjuvant setting, in, in, a, in a setting where you can induce a large immune response, and then hopefully that immune response can be protective. So we've gone down the antigen-specific vaccine uh, approach, 
and in particular using those in the adjuvant setting. The melanoma vaccine that I just mentioned uh, is a departure from that because this is actually an autologous-based system. So instead of trying to guess or be limited by a protein expression in a given tumor, this would allow us to create a vaccine for any patient. Any patient that we can acquire their tumor, we could theoretically mm -hmm. um, uh, derive a, uh, a vaccine for them or make a vaccine for them. And, of course, the secret sauce there is in how the uh, autologous tumor antigens are being delivered to the, to the immune system and how those get eventually processed and presented so that you get that T-cell response you're looking for. So the projects that we have going right now that are very exciting to me is this next generation of vaccines that are not necessarily antigen-specific. They're more autologous or whole tumor cell-based because now you have a variety of antigens that you're delivering. And then, of course, like most things in, in medicine, surgery, and research, combinations are great. And so can we actually combine those two concepts, have an antigen-specific vaccine uh, linked together with an autologous-based vaccine. But we're learning more and more about the way to interact with the immune system from an adjuvant standpoint, how best to deliver our antigenic payloads so that they get the best T-cell responses. And so there's a variety of new technologies that are out there that we're just now starting to scratch the surface on. And then, of course, the, the combining of vaccines with these other therapies like I've already mentioned. So it, it seems like this is, you know, very established kind of concept-proven science. How long before we see this actually showing up in our clinical practices, do you think? Well, um, as I mentioned, the good news is the checkpoint inhibitors are here, and we're seeing those now, and we're starting to see them even move within clinical practice because uh, there's a variety uh, of agents already been improved. As I mentioned, CTLA-4 inhibitors, PD-1 inhibitors, PD-L1 inhibitors now, there's a variety of other checkpoints that are being uh, actively studied, but those three particular pathways are proteins that already have FDA-approved uh, blockade agents that are being used. We're seeing those already creep into practice and change practice. Uh, probably the best example is pembrolizumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor in non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, now, if you have stage four metastatic non-small cell lung, you may get a checkpoint inhibitor instead of chemotherapy as your first line of therapy. Um, and particularly in cancers that have large or higher levels of expression with PDL1. And, and so those patients appear to not only have a better tumor response than chemo, but less side effects and better longevity. So we're seeing the checkpoint inhibitors already change the way we even approach primary first-line therapies in the metastatic setting. The next big uh, evolution is now going to be those checkpoint inhibitors working into the adjuvant setting. The first one's already been approved in adjuvant melanoma. So if you have a high-risk uh, melanoma patient, stage 3, maybe stage 4 resected, they're clinically NED or, or free of disease, but you know they have a significant risk of recurrence, what are you going to do for that patient in the adjuvant setting to decrease their occurrence rate? The gold standard's been interferon alpha. Nobody likes it. A lot of toxicity for a little bit of benefit. Rarely can a patient actually endure a year of interferon alpha. Now, ipilimumab is approved. It is a checkpoint inhibitor. It's a CTLA-4 CTLA inhibitor. And that agent has already shown a 25% reduction in the recurrence risk 
of melanoma, and now that's translated into a survival benefit. Now, the downside, unfortunately, to the checkpoint inhibitors, which I haven't mentioned yet, is the toxicity. And there are some toxicities. Remember, you're blocking the off switch on a T cell. Well, that's all T cells in your body, not just the tumor reactive ones. And so some patients are predisposed to autoimmune diseases. They already have autoreactive T cells. Probably, if we really looked hard, we'd probably find autoreactive T cells in everybody. But some people have more of those. And if you do, in fact, have a large number of autoreactive T cells and you're going to a checkpoint inhibitor, you will have some autoimmune toxicity. And some of these immune-mediated adverse events can be pretty dramatic. And so that's been the barrier, at least so far, to the checkpoint inhibitors being widely accepted in the adjuvant setting or, or widely studied in the adjuvant setting. Because obviously it's a different conversation you have with a cancer patient of saying, you're disease-free right now. We think you're at a risk of recurrence. We don't know if you're the person who's going to recur or not. We're going to give you this adjuvant therapy to hope de hopefully decrease your risk, but there's significant toxicity associated with it. In fact, the EORTC study that was was the approval trial for ipilimumab in the adjuvant study of melanoma actually had five treatment-related deaths. Well, that's a tough type of therapy to recommend to patients if you know that the risk of the drug, you know, is significant and it's in the adjuvant setting and their risk of recurrence is maybe 30%, you take this drug and you're going to have the risk of significant toxicity, even lethal toxicity. That's a tough, tough type of conversation. Now, we're hoping that with the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors, the toxicity profiles will be less in those agents and therefore maybe they will be available for adjuvant use. Uh, as I mentioned from our research, we are hoping to combine vaccines and things to these agents, but we're already seeing the changes in practice. So to answer your question directly, we've already seen the needle move in the metastatic uh, setting. We're seeing it creep into the adjuvant setting. So this would be post-surgical melanoma, for example. I think there'll be more of these approvals coming uh, eventually. Um, and then ultimately, I do believe they'll marry up with other agents to make them more effective. Those trials are still in the phase two range. We're not really into approval phase, uh, range for those studies. So that's still years away before you'll see those in your clinical practice. And what about for prevention? True prevention or secondary prevention? No, primary. <laughs> primary prevention. That, it's always an interesting topic because... Um, you know, we talk about using the vaccines, uh, circumventing the metastatic setting to get into the adjuvant setting so that we can produce secondary prevention, prevent recurrences. And of course, as soon as I talk to people about that, they're like, well, my sister has, you know, uh, genetic predisposition. She's a BRCA patient and, you know, she should be on the vaccine. Well, the reality is that's probably true. I mean, ultimately, I can see uh, a time when we will have cancer vaccines out there for the primary prevention of cancer. We've started taking steps along those lines. Uh, we have a trial going currently in collaboration with Beth Middendorf at MD Anderson in the NCI and their cancer prevention group. Uh, this is uh, being done uh, through the Cancer Prevention Consortium that's led by uh, MD Anderson and Powell Brown, um, where we are using the vaccines now in a neoadjuvant setting to see what direct impact we can have on 
cancer. We're doing this in DCIS because of the uh, less of a concern over a non-invasive cancer versus uh, an invasive uh, cancer. And so that gives us a window of opportunity to give the vaccine ahead of surgery to see what direct impact we have on cancer. And this was meant as a intervening step to ultimately a breast cancer prevention trial. And then that next step would be take high-risk women, whether that's you know BRCA-positive women or multiple family um, uh, members uh, with positive history uh, or positive uh, for breast cancer. I mean, you could even take it all the way down to you know Gale risk scores or any of these other type of risk stratifications. But you take an enriched population that has a risk for developing cancer and you give them an intervening um, modality like a vaccine to try to prevent that initial occurrence of cancer. As you can imagine, though, depending on how you enrich that population, still the incidence of cancer is going to be relatively low. Or if it's not relatively low, it's going to be extended over a lifetime. So how many events do you expect to see over a reasonable period of time so that you can study an intervention? So to even start that trial, you need to have a vaccine that's already been proven to prevent secondary recurrences. If you can find that agent, then you can introduce it into a primary prevention trial. But that trial likely still will be several thousand patients a decade in the making uh, to be able to show that you've impacted the disease. So it's just a tough clinical trial question more than anything. I think ultimately we'll get there, uh, but we need to see some more successes among cancer vaccines before that's going to be kicked off. Well, Dr. Peters, we're going to move into our last segment here, the, the tips and tricks. Uh, you know, every time I, I see a great researcher like yourself come in and, and speak, I'm always kind of blown away how you develop your research projects. Like, how do you think of all these projects? And I think a lot of uh, residents out there and junior staff will uh, appreciate you kind of giving a rundown. How do you go through the thought process of developing a, a project? Or what do you see a problem and then you want to fix it? Is like, what's your thought process? So I think that a lot of this is we all start with kind of a basis, basic thesis that we're working on. And then you start studying that. And a lot of times you do the experiment and you end up with more questions than you do answers. And then you start pursuing, you know, those questions that really intrigue you the most. And it, it just builds on itself. So I can tell you that, you know, and this kind of goes back even to the career path uh, question. I don't know that I ever really intentionally set out to be doing almost exclusively research now and in particularly almost exclusively clinical trial validation of these imminent therapies. This is just kind of where I've evolved to. And I think that the, the research questions also have a tendency to evolve. Um, and like, you know, most good scientists, you go where the data, where the findings take you. Um, the, the best research you can ever do is when you propose a question, you run the experiment, you look at the data, and you follow the data. I think a lot of times, unfortunately, people come into research and they're like, well, I'm going to prove that the immune system kills cancer. Mm -hmm. So you already have your conclusion, and now you're almost working backwards right. trying to design the experiment that's going to prove a point. That's very difficult research, and unfortunately, it's also fraught with um, biases mm -hmm. and can and can eventually actually take you to an, an inappropriate conclusion or an inaccurate conclusion. So I like the idea of starting out with 
How does the immune system interact with cancer? I don't know. It's not a conclusion. I just want to know how this works. And that's the question I started out with in the lab, you know, 25 years ago. How does the immune system interact with cancer? And as we started trying to figure out how that occurred and what the mechanisms were, it was leading us down this path of there are specific pieces of protein that are recognized on these cancer cells, and those are actually shared among other cancer cells that express similar proteins. And that's how we ultimately arrived at here is the first peptide-based vaccine. It turned out to be HER2. We didn't know it was going to be HER2. I didn't look at HER2 and start trying to figure it out from that perspective. The trial, or excuse me, the experiments, the data, it took us where we wanted to go. So I think that it's important in any research program that you're always asking open-ended questions. You're not trying to prove your point. You're trying to see what the data will tell you. And then you just need to be um, objective in quantifying that data, analyzing that data, seeing what conclusions you can draw from it. And like I said, it usually will raise the next question that needs to be uh, explored. And then you design the experiments around that. And so it just becomes kind of a logical path, if you will. Um, and for us, it led from how the immune system interacts with cancer to the mechanism to the actual you know, discovery of the peptides that were being recognized to, okay, can I make those peptides into a vaccine? What does a vaccine require to generate a decent immune response? Can that immune response actually result in a clinical benefit? That pretty much summarizes my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was great. Thank you. Normally, we round out our interviews with what we call the final five, which are five you know, questions we get to know our, 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 our guest. Um, but I know you're a little pressed for time, so I think we'll finish with our final one. So <laughs> uh, if you were to get in a time machine, you were going to go back and you were able to meet yourself on your very first day of your surgical internship, knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself? Um, I would have to say, and actually we kind of covered this a little bit, um, it's always easier to see the path that you're supposed to take when you look at it retrospectively. Mm -hmm. It looks linear if you look at it retrospectively. But, you know, when you're first coming into this as an intern, the world's all out there. You have no idea where you're going. And it can get overwhelming. And, you know, I'm sure it produces anxiety in folks of, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do or want to do. And the good news is you don't have to know. All you have to know is the next decision. And the next decision will lead you down a path and you will be faced with yet another. And you keep making those decisions and you ultimately will work your way through this maze. And I've kind of already said this, but I'm going to repeat it. You will get where you want to go if you continually do a self-assessment where you ask yourself three questions. What am I good at? Where are my talents? Mm -hmm. What am I good at? What motivates me? What's I'm, what am I passionate about? And then what brings me happiness or satisfaction? And if you find yourself in a job that you're really good at and you're passionate, but you're miserable, probably not in the right place. So you ask yourself those questions with each of those decisions you make, and you will work your way through, and you will ultimately find the job that's right for you. Excellent. Excellent advice. Well, Dr. Peoples, I uh, can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with us. It's always inspiring to you know talk to people that are kind of on these forefronts of, of uh, science and advancement and, and hear how they got to where they are. So thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us on Behind the Knife. 
Thank you for having me. Until next time, dominate the day.